Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, Monday evening, and really I shouldn't be doing anything right now. I'm snowing under with work. On the other hand, I did make a commitment to Radomsky, so very nice to sponsor that we would do something today, yesterday and today, um, in honor of a special occasion. Grandmother that turns 90, Kenei Hara, many years, which was, Hebrew birthday was yesterday, Chaf of Tebes. So, uh, that's a very nice occasion. We should, you know, they say, I may have asked for him. And, um, because I want to keep this schedule, even though, I'm on all kind of other projects right now. So I'm going to uh, say a few words. I just looked at who's the yard size this week, and I saw one of them is the three days. And uh, my goodness, there's a lot to talk about him. So I'll say at least a few words on the subject. Here we're talking about Rachel Jakob Weinberg, who is fairly well-known and uh, had the academic good fortune of having a good bio written him by uh, Professor Shapiro. That was a dissertation, I think, on uh, Mikhail Yaka Weinberg. I think it was called Between the She World and the Modern Orthodox, something like that. And uh, indeed, we're dealing with a very unusual person. Famous rabbi was in the 20th century, um, not that long ago at all. And uh, uh, certainly, I can say a few words about him. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I used to read his stuff a lot long ago, the three days, long ago, was into it. He wrote on many subjects, as I'll explain, I'll try to. But uh, then I got out in the last couple of years, more or less, and uh, it was that biography. So when I thought about this now, I said, I know there's a, a very nice um, Hebrew, uh, I guess a eulogy, you might say, or preaching by his good friend, Professor Atlas. And uh, I want to thank Gideon Miller in uh, Houston. He got it for me somewhere online, and it was very good. Uh, anyway, let's get down to business. We're talking about Michael Jakob Weinberg, who died in the 60s, in 1966, I think. That's really not long ago. And was born in the 1880s. So he's around 80 when he passed away. And this is someone who lived through... Uh, all kinds of different times. And this is a combination. Listen close to what I'm about to say. This is a combination of Litvak and Yeki. It's a, it's a funny combination. It's not really funny at all. The truth of the matter is, between the North Germans and the Lithuanian Jews, there was a lot in common. I don't know if people know that. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times, there were many Lithuanian Jews that moved to Northern Germany and fit in after a little while. And... Uh, I don't know about too many German Jews who listen to anyway, why would you do that? But there are many things in common between them. It's interesting. But there's also the big difference, and that is some things play a major role during the lifetime of the Sri Deesh, and that is the Limanat Torah or lack thereof. Our hero 
was born in a small town in Lithuania, Poland, Lithuania, that area. And the bottom line is, he ended up growing up in what we would call the golden age of the uh, Litvish yeshivas prior to the First World War. All right? This room, Chaim Briscoe was running around, and Baruch Baer, they're all young, it's Lepanovitcher. The classic famous names that are kind of well-known to people in the yeshiva world precisely because, as we'll see in a minute, the yeshiva world kind of survived the, the Holocaust in a way that the Yekisha culture did not, which is a major theme for us. So our hero, as I say before, uh, came up the system. If he's born in 1884, so he's a teenager in the 1890s, that's what he's going to do this yeshiva. That yeshiva ends up by the altar in Slobodka, in the golden age of Slobodka, when, you know, Nelson Tvigong was the, uh, the head of the yeshiva. Slobodka was funny, the mashkiach was the main person, the Rashid was number two. That's what it is in de facto. The Rashid was Moshe Mordechai Epstein. These are famous names, okay? And he was an Eloy, so he's the type that they wanted. And uh, he had a, it's clear, all his life he had a very, what I would call, high-strung and delicate personality. Here we get into psychology. Usually, from history long ago, we don't know too much about psychology of people. But from someone that's closer to our times, you can tell here's a person very high-strung, very fine, but, you know, uh, you need a lot of calm and niceness going around. He loved the yeshiva. He was a Talmud Mubuk of the altar simply because they, they in Lithuanian yeshiva, they, they like Elohim, they like brains, and he had that. Um, so you come up to the system. Now, this is uh, what's interesting about the Litvish yeshivas prior to the First World War was that they really had a battle against the Haskalah and things like that. And many boys, maybe the majority, I don't know, uh, were into uh, Moskilic stuff, Zionist stuff, uh, perhaps sometimes Russian stuff. Uh, even socialist stuff, even if the person remained from. So in other words, somebody with B'chana Wasserman, I think he'd be from, he read, you know, uh, who was it, uh, Kant and philosophy books and things like this. In a way, they'll be inconceivable. You imagine a B'chana Wasserman today, somebody in uh, B'nai Brak, right? Or Shalai, the Yishi world. Someone in Punavish or a place like that. Finally, Steinman, he would be interested in, in philosophy in European philosophy. People understand that at that time there was maximum maximum penetration of the power of European culture into Lithuanian yeshivas. It actually declined after the First World War and it totally collapsed after the second. And that's what's going to make the Street Age kind of a dinosaur, in my opinion. All you ever get is my opinion, uh in the second half of his life. Now our hero therefore is very good at learning very firm. Uh, he, as a young boy, encounters and teams up and hooks up with some of the Gadoli Musser, written of Tully Amsterdam and people like that, uh, and learns with them and is uh, mushpa from them. And so here's somebody you might say, I would say, got the best of the Lithuanian yeshiva world, both in terms of Lomdis and in terms of Musser, the best. Uh, but on the other hand, he was interested in more than that as well, which is just interesting. Now, had life remained normal and the First World War not broken out, uh, well, I shouldn't put it that way, but as things remained regular, 
then he should have had the following career. He's a very loose guy. He reached a certain age, he married a right girl, somebody's daughter or sister or something like that. He'd get a job as a maggot shear in some big yeshiva, or he'd become a rov, more likely. Uh, in a Lithuanian town, he would be considered one of the more enlightened Lithuanian gaonim, and, you know, he'd live out of his life that way. Things didn't turn out that way. He did marry this girl when he was 22. She was 16. She was the daughter of, that's right, 16. She was the daughter of a rove. The idea in those days was you married the daughter of a rove, he can at least bequeath you his position as seller. When he dies, in the course of time, chances are they'll take you. You know? However, he got divorced after two years. To this day, I don't have that figured out. And he never remarried which makes him extremely weird in the firm world, because he was 22, 24 at the time this happened. Listen, marriages break apart. It can happen. He's only 20s. He could remarry, you know, easily. And he clearly didn't want to. So I don't know what the reason is. Nobody does. Not that I'm aware of anyway. Uh, and he instead had a life, sort of like a Benazai, Hoshkenafshi Batorah. I don't mean it to be funny. I'm, I'm speaking very seriously. Here's a person... It seems to have had a life of a Benazai, you know. Now, um, and there are such types. Now, but that puts him, you know, a little bit different. An unmarried person like him, I don't think, could ever get a Stella's a rove. You get it? It doesn't go. You don't have a, a bachelor as a rove in the Eastern European community. I don't think he'd been in Germany. That's just interesting. Now, uh, uh, nothing wrong, but I'm just saying that's how it went. Now, and he had very high character, of course. He's influenced by the Musarists in the best sense of the word. And let me say while I'm talking now that he uh, was in love with the Muslim movement, but was able to evaluate it, I won't say objectively, but pretty well. And uh, Hill Jakob Weinberg is one of the classic chroniclers of the Muslim movement. He's not the only one. And if you're interested in his evaluations... I remember when he was a rabbi in Germany during the First World War, he wrote a bunch of articles in the German from newspapers, like the Jewish press or whatever you call it, the Hamadiyya, whatever, on the Muslim movement and the yeshivas in Lithuania and all that. They're very interesting. If you were at all interested in this, I'm about to say, if you're a type of person who's interested in the Tunus of Musa, and perhaps your Hebrew's not so great, so you're not going to read the book Tunus of Musa, which is several volumes, so I would tell you, I don't know if this is online or not, but uh, years ago, Leo Young used to put out these biographies every once in a while, like in the 50s and 60s. And they're really collections of Gedola biographies. Not exactly in the style of the art scroll, but on the other hand, you know, uh, pretty laudatory. And, uh, you know, classic biographies. And uh, in the, one of them, I have some of them, the Man of the Spirit. There's like three or four. My friend at this farm chatter has been endeavoring to try to get me one of the Miss Leo Young volumes. It's supposed to be mailed, but you all know what's going on with the mail so far now. So I'm keeping in touch. I appreciate his efforts. And um, in there is a long essay called Lithuanian Musser by J.G. Weinberg Montreux, which was in Hebrew and the translated to English. So here you have like a 60-page, 70-page English essay, translating English, of his encounters with the Gedolia Musser in his time. And uh, it's actually interesting. 
let me put it this way. If you're the type that's interested in that subject, that's something you want to read in the Leo Young book. So again, the, the, the book is called Men of the Spirit. You'll find it in there if you do your, your proper Googling. But anyway, back to our hero. And so here he is at this age, and it's not clear what you're going to do. As I say, he got divorced. I think he was shook up. Maybe he had a breakdown, because I think in the course of his life, he had, I tell you, very high-strung. And some people have these kind of uh, psychological situations. Get a big gun, and make a long story short, he ends up in Germany, which is next door to somebody. It's again, it's before the First World War, just before the First World War. And when he came to Germany, even though physically it's not that far from Lithuania, if you look at the border, the Prussian border was next door to Lithuania. Nevertheless, it represented a very different world in many ways. Uh, there's a wonderful book by um, Mayor Berlin, the, the contemporary, uh, Barilan, the son of the Tziv, who, uh, as an orphan, traveled to Germany with his mother around this time, in the years uh, before the First World War, I would say these were the best years of the German Jews in some respects, the Kaiser's Germany. And there was a whole orthodoxy over there, you know, the, the Hirschian, Hildesheimer type orthodoxy, which had matured and developed in a certain way with its pluses and minuses. And if you're Litvish, you're coming from the border in Lithuania, where things are unkempt and dirty and the, the officials are corrupt and it's the czarist system, and all that, so on and so forth. And he comes to Germany where everything was organized. Spick and span, you know, kitty off the floor. And the Yiddishkeit also, the spick and span, the synagogues were, you know, totally neat. The whole German-Jewish life was very bourgeois in Europe. In uh, Lithuania, there's a lot of poor people. Germany at that time, even among the Orthodox, was not a lot of poor. It was more or less like you see in America today. And uh, most importantly... Uh, so this made a big Rosham, and this is described at great length in the uh, Barilam book. It's called Von Velozen, Biz Yerushalayim. And the same thing hit our hero. The Kim, they said, wow, this is great. It's true, now listen closely, that there weren't yeshivas and big learning, high level of learning in Germany. Today you had the Yekisha Balabata of old. So they're not Tommy the Chacham necessarily, but they're Medactic B'mitzvahs. And not only that, but they had youth groups and day schools and things like this, and it like blew him away. Because where he came from in Lithuania, prior to the First World War, there was a constant hemorrhaging out of the ranks of Orthodoxy, and you like couldn't stop it. The boys in Yeshiva were a mute. The great majority was heading away from Yiddishkeit into various forms of secular Zionism and Marxism and socialism, other isms are just becoming materialistic, like in droves. And you really didn't see boys and girls, you know, happily going to show on Friday night and participating in mitzvah ceremonies and things like that. Like, blew him away. And from the time he came there, for the rest of his life, he was in love with Torm Derkherz. Now, I repeat, he realized more than anybody that the weakness with Torm Derkherz is they don't have high-level learning. That's true. But, granted, but having said that, they have a better Yiddishkeit than what he sees in, in Lithuania, in his opinion, because it's, you know, more modern, organized, neat, uh, natural. And let me let me tell you this. In his time, most of the women, the front women in Lithuania, for example, Lithuania didn't cover their hair. 
in Germany, they were doing it. Let's just give an example. It's not exactly the way you always think it. So the Yekisha guide, who might be, a, especially if he's a professional, a doctor, or a lawyer, or a professor, who was nevertheless a Shomer Shabbos, that like blew him away. You get it? Uh, and what he did was he ended up spending the years of the First World War in uh, Germany. Now, he was a Russian citizen, so theoretically they could have arrested him and all the rest of it. He obviously had pulled somewhere, and somebody must have told the Germans, this This did happen in Germany in First World War. They were pretty doggone lenient as far as Russian Jews are concerned. It's interesting. The German government, Bider Klau, in the First World War, obviously I'm not talking about the Second World War, was not anti-Semitic. It's very interesting. And there are photos. I did a, a series on this. It's online somewhere. Uh, a lecture series with pictures and everything uh, of the First World War. And you see, they used to let all the Russian Jewish prisoners of war in the Russian army out and go to Shul on Shabbos or in Rosh Hashanah, things like that, to the Orthodox Shuls in, in um, Berlin during the war, knowing full well nobody's going to run away. And they're going out of their parole, and after Yontif, they'll come back. It's a it's a very interesting part that has not been uh, fully explored in the historiography yet. So, while he's there, see, he, like I said before, he said, I really like this, this Yakisha business. And he's not the only one. There's a whole group of people like that. So, Shachtemitz and others. And to them, the term Derecherz, if it's properly modified, as they would say, uh, would constitute the ideal Jewish life. And I think this remained who he was for the rest of his life, which is interesting. Because usually she was looked down on the other. He said the best thing should be the way it is in Lithuania. And the other places are sort of like second second class, second best. Uh, because learning is everything. And here's somebody for whom learning is everything, but he doesn't see it that way. He says, the way you have it is pretty good. Now, as a result, he acquired a formal secular education. Uh, I don't know how he did it exactly, but obviously he took clap tests and things like that. And eventually he was able to get in university, which I've explained more than once. The German system was different. You did a bunch of clap tests until you got your BA, and then you go, university is what we would call graduate school. And uh, he ended up studying, you know, uh, Semitics, biblical stuff, Talmudic, uh, you know, uh, ancient writings in a certain university, doesn't matter where. And he even got friendly with the professor. Uh, and sincerely, and the p- bottom line is that he had a. He, if, if you understand what I'm about to say, he had a good First World War, <laughs> okay. And uh, after the war, he got his uh, PhD. So now you have something most unusual. You have somebody, a smicha from from Lithuania, the real thing, and he has the knowledge of the lumbus, the brisker, the slobodka, the telzer. He really does. And he was a firm person too. And he also has a secular education, uh, a, a doctorate. Now, what does the guy do with that? You say, what do you do with that? Especially if it's the early 1920s. As I said before, uh, he would like to be a professor somewhere, I'm sure. I'm sure. But in German universities, you didn't have jobs for Jews. And if you did, even after the First World War, it opened up a little bit. He's not German by citizenship. And... Uh, Two Eastern European ain't gonna happen. Now, I could construct scenarios. You know, what if they open the university in Israel, which they did at that time? 
But it, this is not what happened. Something fell into his lap. That was a perfect shitter. Uh, he got the right thing at the right time. I'll say it again. He couldn't go back to Lithuania and get a shell there because he's not married. That, that's a non-starter. However, he could... Uh, no, he couldn't do anything. And a guy like him wouldn't last five minutes in the USA. Because he was very fine. Very... Um, uh, plus being very high-strung. The rough and tumble of America where you have to fight with the with the president shows of Michal Chavez. That would mess a guy like him up. He was too fine of a character for that. And uh, anyway, he really lucked out uh, because of the following. There was a Hildesheimer Seminary, which was founder of Israel Hildesheimer. It was Hildesheimer, and I spoke about him some time ago. You can listen. <coughs> I spoke at length, actually. And Rav Hildesheimer was uh, created a seminary which he fit which he felt was perfect for the Yekas in the 1870s. And that was, they have like a six or seven year program. You do at the same time get your PhD. So you're going to two schools at once. You're going to the seminary for the Munich Kodesh, all of which is taught completely orthodox. And you're also going to university to get a, a doctorate. And um, after a while, once you get your doctorate, you take a year off to learn your day and that kind of stuff. Eventually, you take your test, you come out as rabbi doctor. Rabbi from the seminary, doctor from the university, and then you're good for a kahila that wants that. Okay? Now, Rav Hildesheimer ran it his way until he died in the 1890s. When he died, he actually was a senile a few years before, but as long as he was a bar hockey until around 1895, something like that. So he was uh, in charge. And, um,. Then, when he died, the choice of who should take over was clear. His Talmud Mubik was W.C. Hoffman, who had literally been a Talmud of his back in Yeshiva way back when. And he was uh, clearly the leading scholar, as well as the leading Talmud Chacham, meaning W.C. Hoffman was the, uh, a, a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was a Pisic. Uh, he used to give, you know, Shurim every day in Gemara and Halach and that kind of stuff every day. And in addition to that, he was a PhD, but he's a PhD, as we would say today, in Jewish history, in Jewish studies. So he was one of the great giants of what they call the Wissenschaftler Judentums, the uh, German academic way of studying uh, Jewish sources. And basically, it's a study of Jewish history applied to texts. Uh, so uh, the 19th century had a lot of famous German and German-type scholars who do what they call Chachmas Yisrael, and Chachm Yisrael was the old-fashioned term for the Wissenschaft of, uh, of Judentums. And these are people who study Jewish history. Uh, if you're a Bar Hachi, you don't simply do the regular Jewish history. You try to historically analyze Sfarim. Uh, if you're a Bar Hachi, you try to apply historical analysis to Chazal, to the Tal- Talmud in general, which I mean, the Mishnah, the Sefta, the Babli, Yushalmi, the Midrashim, and all the nine yards, the world of Chazal. You try to use, to do that using the tools of historical analysis. Uh, a lot, m- most of those were not from the people who did that. Tabati uh, often was the exception, and he was uh, therefore a, a, an anomaly in a good way. And he devoted a lot of his scholarly career. Uh, meaning, this is the PhD side. 
to writing about and publishing on, I would, if I could use a broad terminology without getting too technical, the world of Chazal and their literature, right? I mean, but in, in technical fashion, and therefore there's nobody like him in Germany. So it's clear that when Israel Hildesheimer died, he is the successor. And he remained, and he certainly was a Baruch See, he was the head of the Hildesheimer Seminary from the 1890s until he died in 1921. That's what happened. Now, when Dovitsky Hoffman died, he did not leave a Talmud Mubaka the same way. There was no other second Dovitsky Hoffman. He was unique. Uh, you know, that's how the Germans looked at him. He's the guy you ask all the Shilohs to. He's the guy you ask all the Emuna questions to. He's the guy you ask any biblical questions to. He even wrote a books analyzing the weaknesses of biblical criticism. He was unusual, to say the least. But there was no other Loenir Camoso. So what did he do then? Uh, it was clear also that Dotsi Hoffman was a world-class Talmud Chacham. So having him as the head of the seminary means you have an A-plus level rabbinical authority, and that itself gives validity to the seminary. But when he died, there was nobody that was perceived being that way. I'm not sitting here in judgment and saying there was no Yekish Rabbi Zabarachi. They were. Okay? So the question was, they can't have a situation in which you have somebody other than A-plus level being the head. Why? First of all, Stam. Second of all, you're always competing against the conservative and reformed seminaries. Now, the reformed seminary, there was, a, was in Germany, there were three seminaries. One Orthodox, one conservative, one reformed. Like the, like the three little pigs. Right? And uh, the ref, the reform seminary was something of a joke. But the conservative seminary was not. They had serious Talmud, some of them over there. And uh, especially doing their type of literary Talmudic analysis. And the Orthodox had to be able to compete. It can't look like a second-rate institution. So you have to have a first-class Talmud over there. Uh so they looked outside and went to Lithuania and said he brought an Abramelia Kaplan who uh, was also a Talmudic. He was very similar to Dorothy Hoffman except that he never went for a formal education. Well, that's a pretty big difference. They were both interested in things outside of that, Hebrew, Hebrew culture, even Zionism to a degree, but Abramelia Kaplan never went to college. On the other hand, he was a remarkable Talmud Chacham and very charismatic and he was a gone. They say he took him in there. He's the one who wrote the essay. He said, we need Stein's Gemara now. But then he died very young, after a couple years. And so when he died, the question was, what do you do now? You have the same problem you had three years ago. There's nobody in Germany from the former Bunim that's looked at as A+. You know, a gone gone. You can't get somebody from elsewhere if he's if he's not a mensch. You can't get, you know, some Hasidic guy who's going to come and looking dressed in Hasidic style in Germany in 1920s. That ain't going to work. Not going to get any Hungarian robe with a funny accent, who again has no secular education whatsoever. And you know, the Balabatim of the Orthodox will be turned off. You got to get someone to capture imagination. Well, guess what? Our hero was there. Right? Kiliaka Weinberg. He was a Lithuanian gone. He really was. He was a Barhoi, no question about it. Right? On the other hand, he has a PhD. He knows the German stuff. He has a second. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. And so they offered him the job and he took it. And as I said before, 
this was like a gift from heaven that fell on his lap. Because what else was he going to do? You know, teach uh, something in Jews College, whatever. What's he going to do? Here, he got to be the head. It was a fairly prestigious situation. And it's what he makes of it. So from 23, 24, I think 24 he started, 1924. For the next you know, 15 years, 14 years, whatever. He was the Russian Shiva, if you want to call it the rector, is the, term, the, the German term, of the Hildesheimer Seminary. He was the rector of the Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary in Berlin. So the boys go half a day to college to pursue their PhDs, half a day Lumuni Kodesh. That's how the idea goes. And um, when it comes to Lumuni Kodesh, so they had somebody teach history and someone else to teach this and that. And he handled the, the Gemara and probably the Alokha too, for all I know. They taught the Gemara class. And uh, he gave a high-level cheer. So people, the, the, the Orthodox Jews in Germany could say like this, listen, you go to Hillsheim Seminary, you have a, a gong as the, as the you know, Magashir, which was not false. And this way, he had a job that was perfect for him. Uh, and uh, he could do it even though he wasn't married. I mean, apparently, he didn't care about that. And he's spending his life being Marbet's Torah at a high level. Plus, in addition to that, he was, you know, he wanted to model himself in Dotsi Hoffman. Nothing wrong with that at all. And he's also going, in addition to giving Gemara classes, he's also going to do the same thing, uh, which is do Wissenschaftler's Judentums, do um, uh, scholarly work and publish in scholarly journals, uh, mainly on the subject of Talmud and Girses and the history of the Mishnah, the kind of thing that Dutchie Hoffman was into. So the technical term for this is Talmud criticism. Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You're not criticizing Talmud. This is a scientific term. But anyway, and so he, um, therefore, gave a very historicist kind of approach to the Sugis. It's very interesting. He was a real genius, and his stuff is very good. It was published in uh, in Germany in the 30s, I think, Mechorim Batalmud. This is side by side with him giving a lumpage this year every day, you know, to the boys and uh, the young men. And also, halach, I'm sure. Now, as the head of the seminary, that means all the new rabbis are going to be educated by him. He's the one going to give the smicha. Don't be surprised if they're going to ask him all the shilas. So in the same way that W.T. Hoffman, in his day... And Rav Hildesheimer also he used to get a ton of questions. I mean, when I say shalos, the kind of shalos when I was young, they used to call the Moshe Feinstein questions. You know, you don't know what to do. You call New York. <laughs> you think, Can I speak to the Rav? Can I speak to Rosh Hashiva? You know, like that. Very practical questions for all aspects of life. And he, therefore, uh, remember, he wasn't married. So he put a considerable amount of time into answering the shalos. And, uh, this is the basis of the 3 Uh So, basically, he had a person with a very happy life, according to his way. Now, again, he wasn't married, he didn't have a family, this, that, and the other, all of which is unusual, no question about it. But on the other hand, what was he doing? He was totally immersed in Torah, and he was totally immersed in Mada, by which I mean the Madashal Torah, you know, the Chachmas Yisrael. And he was free to publish on subjects that interested him, which were Shas and Poskin, especially Shas, especially, like I say before, questions which are historical questions, 
about the text of the Talmud and uh, the relationship between the Mishnah and the Sefta of the Talmud, probably in Shalmi. And uh, I remember he wrote something about that certain that somebody ignores we he would be a person today. Remember the, the, what's that book called, The Chosen, where one of them says you have to figure it out your own, and the other one says let's amend the text. So now you kill Yaakov Weinberg very much someone who says let's amend the text, not Stamazai, but after tremendous research and going across the Kesef Yad, and uh, you know that sort of thing. I actually spoke about plan to speak about this tomorrow night in connection with my father's your type, uh, but he. It'll be a classic of that type. And he had a happy world. You understand? Now listen, the Hildesheimer Seminary uh, was, listen closely, I would evaluate it as being on the extreme left of the extreme right of, of Judaism. Okay? And that is who our hero was, in my opinion. He was very comfortable being on the extreme left of the extreme right of Judaism. Right? So, even though really, really, really he was like a Mizrachist, but he was not. He was in the Agoda. Because the seminary was an Agoda institution, formerly. W.C. Hoffman was one of the founders of the Moetzis Kedolia Torah. But even W.C. Hoffman was very much on the extreme left of the extreme right. So somebody like our hero would be one of those many Rabbonim who in the 1920s and 30s were dreaming of the day when the Agoda Mizrahi would, uh, you know, bury the hatchet and make peace with each other, and create a united orthodoxy, which could bring out you know the most positive elements of both sides, and give to give due regard to Zionism, but at the same time, don't give it on the Haredi stuff. Now the person who blocked I spoke about this once, and Reb Chaim Moser was the one who blocked this all the time, because in Reb Chaim Moser's opinion, in his Das Torah, this was not, it was a shotness; it wouldn't work. You understand? And our hero will, will always follow Chaim Meiser. At the end of the day, he's a member of the extreme right. He was a Aguda guy. You understand? He just, like many people, he didn't like a lot of things about the Aguda. Well, there's nothing new about that. Okay? But that's the world that he was comfortable in. And his buddies that he grew up with were people like Cheskel Sina and, you know, or Isaac Sher, people like that. All the Slobodka types. So, on the one hand, he had one foot as is the title of uh, Mark Shapiro's biography, clearly in the Yeshiva world, in Slobodka, uh, you know, Bar Bark Harwitz was a good friend of his, the, the, you know, the Rashiv, the Alex uh, he liked the fact that he was from their Hebra. On the other hand, he had another foot in this other world, which was strange to them. Uh, I would call it the Dover Three Hoffman world, if I can. Right? The world of Mechkar, the world of interest in history, and in general, a broader view of what uh, of what Jewish life is. In addition to that, when he came to Germany, I said before he liked the fact it was neat and clean and all that. Um, he saw things that he himself writes, like shocked him, until he came to see that it's good. The most famous of which, in my opinion. The most controversial would be mixed groups of boys and girls like youth groups and things like that, which he used to have in Hirsch's time and other times like that. You understand? In other words, not the rigid separation between two. Now, they didn't have mixed classes exactly, only in very few places. They Really, they didn't. But when they had youth activities, they had boys and girls. 
and most importantly, in Shul and Shabbos. So one of his famous um, controversial uh, rulings in the 3D age is about having, um, you know, after the war he was asked this, is having uh, mixed youth groups in France, I think it was. Sacher Mayor at that time, but later was in uh, in the down south, you know, what's it called? Uh, wherever that town is in, in, you know, in the desert. Uh, name escapes me. You know, uh, he was the, 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 the Madrid over there. And he was asking him, he said, uh, you know, can you have a mixed group? Like a banana keep, as we would say today, although that's not what it was. Uh, and he said, when I came to to, to, your, to Lithuania, I was shocked. See mixed groups, boys and girls. And they would sing together on Shabbos and Shul. There's Miros. But, I, but they, they said, this is what Rav Hirsch said to do. And this is what Hildesheimer said to do. And I see it works. That's basically his approach. I see it works. I mean, it comes out that these kids grow up from and normal. They have a, a healthy religious attitude towards things. And it works. So to him, Rav Hirsch, Hildesheimer, and those kind of people often were master educators. They were, in his opinion, they were in touch with all elements of the Jewish, the firm population. They knew how to hold the attention of the old and also of the young, and how to bend when necessary with the young without giving up on Ikrin. And he was very much from this kind of uh, approach, and therefore he wanted to term Derek Harris. Now, as the head of the seminary, he was well aware that the Achilles heel of the term Derek Harris was the low-level Limina Torah. Well, I'll tell you something. In the 20s, when he was coming up, there was a trend in Germany to um, increase the level of Limana Torah. And I would even say in general, in many parts of German Orthodoxy, to move things to the right. Uh, this is when you started to have for the first time, in the 20s, uh, German boys going off to Lithuanian yeshivas. There's a famous letter some of you will know about, the Chavetz Chaim writes, uh, Chavetz Chaim, I say, in the 20s, to the German Jewish youth, which he meant those boys that are interested, come home, little Sheba, you know, come come home to uh, to the yeshivas. And they started to, and in a very uh, idealistic fashion. And this, of course, trend increased in the 30s, particularly when Hitler came over. And many people that we know in America and Israel are Yekis, you know, who, who um, are part of this. And Rabbi Neuberger came that way, all the people in Baltimore, I was at the uh, Sheba house of Rabbi Hoffer today. He told me his father was like that. Now, this whole trend of realizing that we have something good in Germany, but it lacks very much a higher level of Lima Torah, this was embraced, embraced more and more. And so he was in a situation where I would say the wind was blowing his way. If anything, there started to appear in Germany, you know, time is against the model of the seminary should be replaced back with old yeshiva. And he said, the seminary is actually a good idea because uh, Jews should know more than just Gemar, 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 even though there's no question that Gemar, Gemar, Gemar should be number one. It's a priority in the curriculum and all the rest of it because he was a firm guy. But nevertheless, they should also know other things as well, you know, whether it's Tanakh or history or things like that. This is his approach. Now, as I said before, because he was in Germany, people gave him room. In Eastern Europe and elsewhere, they never said, oh, he's like a left-winger or something like that. 
As soon as you told somebody you're in Germany, everybody said this. Germany's different. That's how Hirsch got away with it. That's how Hildesheimer got away with it. People say, I guess, oh, Germany is such a different Matthias. We would not tell somebody a rub how to run the show in Germany. Only they know, because they're Johnny on the spot. And so as long as he was there, uh, he had this kind of uh, Teflon, I would say. I'll give you an example I'm talking about. I remember the famous story when Hunter Wasserman came to America, he would not speak in YU. It's kind of a famous incident. Well, I'm speaking why you. He's got Limuni Kosh Limuni Chol. But he did come and speak by the Hillsheimer Seminary for Chiyaka Weinberg. And by the way, they debated, I think, if I remember correctly, they debated Yeshiva versus Seminary, Bukhana and him, publicly. Why did, how come he had problems in New York and he didn't have problems with him in Berlin? Berlin is different. You know, that's part of the mentality of the Eastern European Jews. Now, I know it's funny, but I'm just sharing this with you. Now, um, this was good as long as it lasted. The problem, of course, is in twenty was okay in Germany, but in thirty-three Hitler came to power. When Hitler came to power, it didn't take too long before you see that uh, things ain't going in a good direction. Now, uh, didn't happen overnight because when Hitler came to power in the thirties, he didn't start a Holocaust. Instead, what he tried to do in general, between 1933 and 1938, without using violence, was to try to re return the Jews to the ghetto. Try to, to, as much as possible, restore the situation that had been in Europe before, before the Jews had been given civil rights. It's a long and complicated story, but that, that's what it is. The problem, of course, is you can never go back to exactly the way it was before. Because Germany in, in 1933 was not Germany in 1733. And so as Karl Marx said the first time, it's a comedy. Second, uh, a tragedy, second time, it's a farce. Uh, so it had the farcical aspects. But this is when they passed all those laws. They used to be part and parcel of regular law. Jews can't sit here, they can't go here, can't participate in this, they're excluded from that, can't marry anybody, you know, uh, not Jewish. All those kind of laws. So in the course of this German Jewry, Went through tough times, but they weren't shooting them. Okay, there were no, there was no concentration camps yet, as we understand the term. No, no extermination camps. None of that. So in all this, Michael Weinberg found himself like in a hot seat, because he had this job in the twenties that was all positive, but now there's a lot of negative. On the other hand, you can view it as a challenge. You can view it as a challenge. Now in his writings, you see, though a lot of it was lost. Well, it was later burnt. But you see, he got all kinds of shadows in the 20s and especially in the 30s on practical life, which increased uh, the shadows very much in the 30s because all of a sudden you had new situations and tensions. I remember he asked questions like this. Can you have a concert in Orthodox synagogue? Because, you know, we can't, the Jews can't have concerts anymore. And if you're a cultured German Jew, you got to go to a, to, to a opera, not an opera, but a you know, Philharmonic or something like that. And, you know, couldn't have it in the Jewish venue. In Europe, the synagogues didn't have social halls, so you got to have it in the show. And, or you have a speaker in a Jewish, you have a public speech inside a base Knesset. In America, we're used to doing all this. But uh, in Europe, they still had the from notions that a base Knesset is mom, base Knesset, I say, is mom, is a makam kodesh. There's not even for Sikha Schulen. And shouldn't be even talking there. Just dominating, you know? 
all right, learning, but just starting, you know, learning. So you can't have a guy come and give a speech like we have in America, scholar in residence, and you know, talk about Jewish history or something like that in a base Knesset. I'll tell you again, nowadays in America, it's nothing. We we don't consider it an issue, but they did. It's very interesting from his childhood. And he had, of course, all the regular questions about real life, you know, intermarriage and this, that, and the other. The most famous controversy I recall that he uh, got involved with was with the Rukhachev, believe it or not. Uh, the Rukhachev had a daughter. I know it's in the Mark Shapiro book. The Rukhachev had a daughter. I mean, it's in the street age. And uh, she was married in Eretz Yisrael, and her husband died, and she had no kids since the Yibam situation. And uh, this is just interesting. That's why I'm sharing this with you. How's it go? Said there were two brothers. Um, which one does the Yibam? Uh, the Chalitza. That, because you can't get married until you do the Chalitza. Well, it turns out, her husband's name was Citron. So it turns out that uh, one brother had converted to Christianity. Isn't that something? You, you had a problem with conversions in Germany in the 19th century. It happened. This guy was already a Christian. Living in Berlin. Uh, the other brother was a communist uh, living in St. Petersburg in Leningrad. Now, how do you evaluate this? This is called Chalitza's Mummer, you know, famous Shiloh. Can a Mummer, li literally somebody converted to another religion, can he perform the Chalitza in such a way that after that the woman can remarry? This is a Obviously, this ain't the first time it's happened. It's one of the great shilas in halachic history, in Jewish history. There's a chalitzis mummer. It's been going on forever. And uh, here he had a funny situation. Because neither was from, but one had converted to another religion, and the other have, hadn't. Now, I'm not sure. You know, that's what I'm saying. Meaning, if you're a Marxist, if you're a communist, you don't believe in any religion. You could cynically say, and I'm speaking seriously now, you know, communism is a religion. These guys believed in it. On the other hand, you can also say, listen, it's atheist. It's not a religion. Whatever it is, it's a paid hashkafa, it's a pakorsis. Call it whatever you want. It's not another religion. You know what I'm saying? You don't believe that Karl Marx is a god. So Lenin is a god. I mean, they talk like that. They have statues of them everywhere. But not Mama, she's a god. So... A boreolum. So, what happened was, what does the girl do? And um, the rugged. So the problem was, I think it, I think it goes like this: If one brother is a mummer and the other isn't, you got to wait for the other brother. But it'd be very hard to get the chalitza out of Soviet Russia. That time, Berlin was an open city, a free a free country. So the rugged said, uh, "Remember, it's his daughter." He said. That the communist is also a mummer. It's no different. The communist is a mamish super apicorsis. They're persecuting Judaism. It's mamish like another religion. And if it's not another religion, because the Rukhachar knows it's not another religion, literally, it's as bad as that. So somebody becomes a communist, his mamish converting to a different way of life, and he's a mummer. Once you got two brothers and mummers, you can do you can do the chalitza either one. And then you can just go to Berlin and do it with the Christians. Because apparently he was a nice fellow. Then they said, "We know you can, you know, convert it to another religion. Well, listen, you got a sister over here who's messed up, and all you have to do is go through the ceremony. I remind you, from the point of view of Judaism, we still Jewish, and so on and so forth." 
Michiel uh, Weinberg, who was much younger, he's in his 30s, he said, you know, communism is not another religion. Yisrael al-Fishelchot Yisrael who? I know you can say it about a Christian also, but that's classified as a mummer. And so, uh, she can't use the brother in Berlin to do the chalitza because he literally converted to another religion. So he's a mummer. On the other hand, the brother in um, Soviet Russia is still a Jew. And so you have to wait and get the chalitza from him. And the Rabbi was angry at him, and he cussed him out, the Kedark of Kodesh. I mean, it's all in the three days somewhere. I mean, if you look over there, it was a lot. He wrote a lot of letters back and forth to people. This is part of the interesting part of life. In the course of that, he obviously went through very thoroughly the issue of Mummer, the one in Yavamas, and so on and so forth. Now, um, here you are in Germany in the 30s. The giant child was not a Khalid's Mummer. The giant child that hit the Jews from day one was Shrita, because Hitler, as soon as he came into power, I think the very first law they passed was no shechita, which is to say, you can shecht an animal, but only after it's stunned. In other words, SPCA. I know it sounds funny that a regime that killed 6 million people is worried about the animal things, but it happened. Okay? And I know it's real easy to be um, cynical about it, obviously, because you're going to be cynical. Uh, you know, the Germans all of a sudden care about the animals, but that's what it was. And so the question was, what do the German Jews do now? Do you simply swear off a of meat? That's not so pushing to tell people, especially entire Kehillah, all over Germany. Thousands of people. It's Xerxing Yochalamabo. Or do you say, let's look for a heter, literally, you know, by being my eye in the Gemara in the postcard. Really? You can figure out a way to stun the animal just prior to the Shrita. Now, the problem was you give electric shock and that caused the blood to congeal, something like that. Risa gave barn. You have chulin questions, you understand? It's a giant chulin issue. And uh, our hero, he spoke with Chaim Meiser, he spoke with everybody about it. And he himself, he himself worked out the Yigi of the Ian, the Hatcher. But on the other hand, he wasn't going to pass on his own because he recognized it as a Oh, a, a giant question. And he went to Chaim Meiser and a couple others, and they said that, although it is hard to say this to German Jews, we should not start stunning. First of all, they weren't sure about the Heter. And second of all, this would sound like there's some, like we're being moda, that there's something bad about Shechita. And we're not. And since Hitler is a kind of Shasa Shman, a kind of, um, not in the classic sense of Shas Hashemad, in the sense of when he changed religion. And all this stuff is in the in, in the literature there, right? Um, and it's a, it's not a situation of Hargwal Yavar in the classic sense, but nevertheless, in the ideological sense, it's a it's a kind of attack, a principal attack on Yadus. Therefore, we have to uh, uh, hang tough and say the only way you can do Shkita is the old-fashioned way, and that's it. And he was Mavatalis Das. He, he, he had a whole thing published, ready to publish, to make the case, and, and he didn't. Uh, because he respected Rechaim Meiser. He was that type. And um, the German Jews had it tough. Now, if I remember correctly, chicken you could probably check, and a lot of illegal shita took place. You know what I mean? A lot of illegal shita. I remember I had a person in my show passed away, um, Wolf Rotenberg, 
and um, I think his daughter-in-law might be listening right now. And his father, he told me, was a shaykhin, and he checked it illegally, you know, under in in, in Hitler's time. Uh, anyway, so this this is just an example, uh, and the whole thing is in the three days, you know, in the in the Yorday part, uh, at, at great length, all the correspondence with the Gdom on this subject and so forth. It reminds me that, uh, you know, in America, the law as it's written, I believe, says this. Listen closely what I'm about to tell you. All in all, inhuman forms of animal slaughter are prohibited with the exception of shechita. <laughs> now, this doesn't say shechita is humane. It says all inhumane forms of slaughter are also are prohibited by American law, except for shechita. Right? Uh, and I remember hearing that when this happened, I think it was in the 50s, the rabbis were angry, but uh, they huddled with Hubert Humphrey, and he said like this, I'm from the Minnesota, I negotiated this deal with the SBCA guys, and take it. You understand? Just take it. And the Laser Silver, Salvation, and the others, Newberger, they said, we'll take it. Because de facto it means that they're not going to Asashita. Or they're not going to insist in America on the same thing on stunning or something like that. Uh, nowadays, I think the shit in America is safe simply because you have so many Muslims over here. You understand? But on the other hand, you never know. In Europe, they're passing laws, as you know, against shit all the time. Mainly, in my opinion, to stick it to the Muslims. That's their way of saying, leave, go home, don't eat meat, get out of here. Uh, and we Jews are collateral damage. But, I don't know, it's a complicated subject. Anyway, the three days was famous for that. Now, then came, incidentally, you know, he, uh, it's, I remember, he went to England, maybe? There was a possibility he might get on the London best in. So instead of Cheskel Abrams, it would have been him. Which would have been very Engl interesting in England. Because Robert Abramsky was the odd type, and three days was a different type. He had a doctorate, he was interested in academics, he was more modern, even though he was a big gun also. I mean, we could play an interesting game. Those who are listening in England had the London best in been sort of dominated by uh, Yaakov, Rabbi Dr. Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg instead of Ralph Hagon uh, Abramsky. Which way would England have gone? Uh, Orthodox Jewry. England. It's a what if. But it didn't happen. I mean, Rabbi Hurt's one of them, but it didn't happen. And other things didn't happen. And the end of the story is, he stayed in Germany until Kristallnacht, when Hitler switched to violin and burned down all the shuls, and they burned down the Hillsheimer Seminary. They they ran it, they smashed it up, they trashed it up, and they destroyed it. And from that day on, there was no seminary. He's out of a job. See, now you can imagine. Uh, maybe you can't. Uh, Kristallnacht was not only they burned all the shuls. But the police went and arrested people, threw them the concentration camps and beat them up. Things like that. Now imagine a guy like our hero, who I told you before, but by Teva, very delicate, high-strung, sensitive, uh, the type of person who could easily, under proper uh, stimulus, get a nervous breakdown. Things like that. You know, fall prey to depression. And uh, being arrested by Hitler. My goodness. Now, he himself was not a German citizen. So they couldn't beat him up. So they just threw him out of the country. And I remember when it happened, 
I mean, think of the personal tragedy. You put your life into the seminary. They have all these farms. You have your own personal writings, and all of it's trashed and burned by the by the Nazis. It like it took him down, and he had students that like you know physically, what came with them on the train and left and came to Lithuania, you know, you know to help him out. And I remember he, he came there and he was also broken, and all the rest of it, and then began tales of woe, because he's trying to recover over there, and then the first, Second World War breaks out, now. If I remember correctly, when he came back to Lithuania, his nerves were shattered. He must have had a breakdown. I mean, I'm talking about, look, I'm not a doctor, so I don't understand exactly the difference between this type of psychological thing and that kind of thing, but he was sashmetered. And they send him to a, a, a sanitarium to recover. That's what they used to do. The trouble is, the sanitarium was near Lublin, in, in the middle of Poland. And he was there when the Second World War broke out, so he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was there arrested by the Germans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Next thing you know, he's in the Warsaw Ghetto. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, in the Warsaw Ghetto, which he was there for a year or two, you hear what I said, a year or two, he went through unbelievable horrors. Now, on the one hand, he's also schmettered. Uh, I don't know why it didn't kill him. Uh, psychologically, you know. I mean... He starts seeing people dropping dead, as you saw from starvation in the streets of Warsaw. They made the the the, the Rabbanim in Warsaw said you you should be the head of the goodest Rabbanim of Warsaw, and the goodest Rabbanim of Poland. You should be the number one guy, which is just interesting. So they must have really respected him. He said it's because they couldn't argue among themselves. Who, who's, you know, they, it's better pick an outsider that way you won't have arguments among who should be the both. I want you to understand what I'm talking about. People like Ramanachem Zemba and the others, they say, you should be the head of the Bezdin. Okay? Now imagine being the head of the Bezdin in the Warsaw Ghetto. The shadows are indescribable. And I don't think he was capable mentally of deep learning. That's what he writes. I can understand it. Every minute is and there are many stories over and over again. I saw the Atlas writes that, you know, people dropping down in the streets. And from the very beginning, he was turned off because the Holocaust brought out the worst side of the Jewish character and the best. And, you know, the worst side of characters, you see somebody literally starving away in front of you and you don't give him a penny because I'm hoarding all the money for myself. They were rich and poor, believe it or not, in the words of the ghetto. At the end, they were all dead, but in the beginning, they were rich and poor. And the rich were not helping the poor. And uh, if you've ever seen pictures, I'm, I bet you some of you had, if you have the stomach for it, of people just wasting away and dying and all the corpses everywhere was a horror. Here, let me switch this for a second. Okay, here we are. Um, as I was saying, he was in Warsaw and a guy on Shabbos, uh, the story is, uh, was basically dying in front of him as he came home from show or something. And, you know, because he, he, he was starving, they needed money to get food. And if any, didn't have any, and it was Shabbos morning, and our hero, ran into his house, came out with a fistful of dollars, and he starts screaming at the Jews, you have to help also, whoever can get money right now, you know, should help this guy, Pekoch Nefesh is more than anything else, and remember, he was the head of the Rabbanim in Warsaw, but like the Rambam says, you know, when it comes to Pekoch Nefesh, the Godel shall be thrown, so the one should lead the charge, and that's a famous Rambam. You know, uh, Gedoli's role of Chachamim. 
And, you know, let's put it this way. That's the reaction of a Baal Musser. You understand? One of the reasons a person like that is going to have nervous breakdowns all the rest of it is because the world is not a Musser world. <laughs> you know? People generally don't act in a Musser dick away. I don't mean Musser with the frummy stuff. I mean Musser in terms of the personal ethics, which is, you know, what what he was taught, what, the way he was trained. Uh, anyway, he was in the worst of ghetto. He saw all this horrible stuff. And then something totally weird happened, which I don't understand myself. And that is, he was pulled out of the Warsaw ghetto by the Germans and sent to like a special dungeon, shall we say, in South Germany for Russian prisoners. Now, he was a, a citizen of Lithuania, but Lithuania had been gobbled up by Stalin by that time. Uh, and so uh, Hitler must have, I mean, the Hitler regime, which really was a very disorganized regime. And, you know, the right hand often didn't know what the left hand is doing. That is true. But he was considered like a Soviet citizen, even though he never was in the Soviet Union. And as a Soviet civilian, for some reason, he was put on ice. You know, like we'd say today, uh, the old-fashioned type of jail in which you put there for political prisoners. Now, this is crazy. Uh, but it happened. There were some people, for example, you know, Hitler's anti-communist. Sometimes he arrested a communist, put him in a, in, a, in a jail somewhere, and locked the key and threw it away. And so, if the guy didn't make trouble, he could survive getting a meal a day or something like that in a dungeon. It's not Auschwitz. It's not a gas chamber. It's not mass shootings. You see what I'm saying? And therefore, X number of communists actually survived the, the war by sort of being like out of the way and out of sight in some little jail somewhere. And the Germans just mechanically went on and, and were administering the jails. Uh, that seems to have happened with him. He was sent to this place near Nuremberg, a place for political prisoners. I don't get it. The reason I say it is Hitler, in the course of World War II, captured millions of Soviet soldiers. And it's notorious. He starved them all to death. Uh, really? Shoot to Kamashmol. So in other words, Hitler took millions of Soviet citizens, soldiers, and 97% uh, perished. You know what I said? So in other words, he wasn't scared of that. But people were civilians. We had Soviet passports or something like that. For some crazy reason, um, it could be different. My mother from Czechoslovakia, she said she knew somebody in the war who was a communist and he was thrown into jail by the Slovaks and as a result, he survived. I don't say he had a great time. You know, being in a dungeon is not fun and there's nothing to do all day long. But guess what? It beats Auschwitz. It beats being shot in a mass grave. It beats from the gas chambers and the Dr. Mengele stuff. So in strictly relative terms, you understand what I'm saying. He had a paradise. Now, he didn't have paradise, but you, you understand what I'm saying. So it's weird. All during the second half of 1941, and all during 1942, 43, 44, into 45, when millions of Jews were being gassed and killed in all kinds of ways and tortured, he was like, in a, in a little vinkle of somewhere, sort of forgotten. That's what it seems. 
Now, I don't know how a guy like that survived, because if you have delicate constitution, and you're high-strung, and you're mental, and this, and that, and the other, and if your whole life is for intellectual activities, and the intellectual activities is all Torah-dick, or Jewish science, you know what I mean, um, Chachmas uh, Yisrael, um, and you don't do anything all day long for years, and you're with a couple other Russians, uh, and obviously you don't have New York film or anything like that, forget all that. I have no idea how he made it. But he did. And by the time the war was over, in 45, he was still alive. So he ducked a bullet. Had he been in Lithuania, he would have been one of those places where, you know, everybody was shot. Or he would have been tortured like most of the others. You know what happened in Lithuania. Everybody was killed just about. Uh, had he been elsewhere in Poland and the Warsaw Ghetto, he would have been schlepped to Auschwitz or Treblinka, you know. So it's, it's weird what happened. Um, and here you are, 1945. And by the way, he it's not like, you know, these movies where they listen to the news. He was out of it. He was like in a dungeon or something for years. So when the war was over, he was not familiar with the fact that six million had just been killed. When he got out and he was, uh, you know, like I say, it's a schmettered human being. When he was alive, he hadn't been tortured, you know, beaten up. So um, he said, I'm going to go back to Lithuania. They said, guess what? There's nobody, they, they killed them all. Poland, they killed them all. He had a shock. You know, I said, no, it's, it's a strange story. After the war was over, and by the liberation, then he discovered a full scale of the Holocaust. And for a guy like him, who came from Lithuania, came from Germany, everybody was killed and killed in horrible ways. There's a shock and a breakdown. And uh, he was going to die. He was in a hospital. But the hospital nursed him back. And people found out about him. And, uh, you know, they came to visit him and they built his spirits up. Rabbi Rosenberg, from the Goddess Rabbanim and others. And uh, he survived, you know. So here's somebody, when the war's over, trying to pull himself back together. But he was a shattered person. And, uh, and, uh, I think for this reason, the way he did was, one of his former students, uh, Shaul Weingart from uh, Switzerland, from family, they were devoted to him, they found out about him, and uh, he went to Germany, and he brought him into Switzerland, to Montreux, which is a beautiful area, and he said, stay by me, until you recover, and you know, you're the guest who's coming to dinner, meaning, stay here forever if you want, I, I would be highly honored. If you would be my guest, little employed. And he meant it. You know, because he knew he's not married and so on and so forth. If you want to stay right here. In Montreux was a small yeshiva, right? Bashko, was religious wasn't yeshiva on the level of Slobodka, that was yeshiva. And uh, it's the only yeshiva left probably in Europe at that time. And, you know, you're in Switzerland, across from the French border, and you have the lakes. As we would say today, the, the, the nature is beautiful. By that I mean it calms you down. Get it? It calms you down. You know, many don't realize the necessity to sing pretty chitsonious after Holocaust survivors. My father, his yard says tomorrow night, my father, after the war, when he came to America in the end of 46, after after the concentration came, everything, he was all smattered also. And uh, he went to psychologists because all the federations did. So, you know, he used that full-time psychologist try to handle, at least scratch the surface of all these survivors. You can imagine how good they were. And he said, like this, you got to go see movies with bright colors, go to see Oklahoma, go to see Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, 
It's necessary for the therapy to see happy and positive. So Switzerland is the nature part of that. Sam Smith once went to Switzerland and he said, Now I have to make a bracha to tell everybody Shalom I've seen Switzerland. You know, it's unusually pretty. And it was a calm community and, and all the people treated him like an asterisk for the rest of his life. Whatever you want, whatever you need, please let us help you in every way possible. And it was it was quiet there. And so what happened was for the next twenty the last twenty years of his life, for notice from the time he was in the sixties, seventies, he died in his early eighties. That's where he stayed. In that old town of Switzerland. And he hardly ever left. He became like a prisoner of Zenda, prisoner of Montreux. Me, self-imposed. It's weird. And I think, in you know, everybody knows this, and nobody knows exactly why. He had a lot of offers. He could have gone in a lot of different directions. I'll just give you off the top of my head. Don't you imagine why you would twist like a pretzel to get somebody like him? Why not? I would. You know, yeshivas, if the, if he wanted to go that route and become a magachir in Israel, he could be, you know, in the mirror someplace like that if he wanted to. He's a super bar hockey, right? If he wanted to go to Professor Rube, especially when they started Bar Ilan, a place like that. A guy like this would have been perfect for uh, being professor of Talmud in the Hebrew University. I'm serious. Uh, would have been good for both because he would have been firmer than the other ones. But on the other hand, with high level of academics attached to it. But he didn't go anywhere. He spoke about it, he never going anywhere. He stayed there for the rest of his life, even though it wasn't an intellectual center, Montreux. There was a yeshiva there, but not a high level. And second of all, he didn't have kind of intellectual intercourse that somebody him desperately needs. But they did nurse him to health physically and emotionally, and they waited on him hand to foot, knowing that he's very delicate, and they totally respect everything about him. And this way, they said we have a diamond on our hands. The Jewish community there and these families. Uh, the guy who brought him in was killed in a car uh, in a train wreck a year later. That really helped Shmetra and me more. But the family, the widow and the, the orphans, they said, we want you to stay here like our father did. And basically, his cares were taken care of for the rest of his life. He got money from Germany. Now, uh, the result is, here's somebody who's living in the, in the, in, from 1946 into the 50s and into the 60s in Switzerland. He gets all the Jewish newspapers. It's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of Menachem Begin when he had his breakdown and just stayed in his apartment and listened to the news and read the paper all day long. Now, this is quite different, as you'll see in a second, in a hundred ways. But there's that part... That you know, I don't want to go out there and, and deal with the with the large wide world, because the fights and everything will tear him apart. He stayed in Montreux for the rest of his life. He got all the newspapers and the uh, uh, you know magazines and the Jewish stuff. He eventually got his farm, and uh, he it was very interested in the rise of the state of Israel, for example, that kind of stuff. But I think he stayed there, and I remember Professor Shapiro said something like this also, because. It was like a little uh, time warp. Uh, what was happening in Israel and in America? I would say things are moving to the right. When I say the right, what was the most dynamic trend in both places? You know, like around Cutler and that kind of thing. Which is a deprecation of term derkerts. A deprecation of that. Uh, at the most, it's Torah and college for Pernosa. 
know what I'm saying? The idea that there's some value in European culture is completely rejected after the Holocaust. They said this proves that there's no value in this. And the same Germans, and we've heard this speech a hundred times, they had all this culture turned into the biggest barbarians. You understand? Biggest sadists. So, to heck with them. And we turn our back totally on that. We go only Torah. And as you know, in this country, the Lakewood tried to make it no college. In Israel, definitely no college. Uh, all this was against what, who he was. He said, I think a college is a little Now, he meant liberal arts. You know, not for Parnassian purposes. Person should do terms at the highest level. The Hildesheimer tradition. Well, that made him a dinosaur. That is not where the front people, generally speaking, were heading. Unless you live in Switzerland, you hang around France, you had X number of Jewish intellectuals over there, a little bit unusual. And those guys, if you know they were, uh, uh, tried to maintain that in the uh, post-war era. To be very firm on the one hand, but on the other hand to engage with uh, modern culture. And that's the group he felt comfortable with. The problem is, they weren't big to me. You can't talk to them in learning. The people who can talk to him in learning are his old buddies like uh, the Rosh Hashibas in uh, Slobodka and Mir and places like that. And But then we can't talk to the the, the um, Derek part. And so it's the old problem. Uh, I want to be able to have conversations with the same individual in terms of Derek Hertz. Get it? I want to be able to be a friend with a guy who comes to my house and for a half hour we can talk in Columbus. The other half hours we can talk in terms of Derek Hertz. Meaning worldly things. You get it? And a one who, person who has that mizug. Uh, but I always find, he said, the guy I can talk about a half hour or two hours in Lumbus is has no interest in their hearts whatsoever, and vice versa. The Thai I can talk to is from. He's a doctor, a lawyer, and this, that, and the other, an academic. But he doesn't know how to learn. Not really. Not learning like his style. And so he, he's always complaining, but don't get shave. You know? I'm like uh, left alone. In addition to that, Orthodox Judaism became tremendously politicized. Well, it always was politicized. But the rise of the state of Israel was tremendously politicized. And he's a guy who wanted to wanted to have a foot in both camps. He didn't want to be dismissed by the Shiba world as somebody who's not from or is a modern. On the other hand, he didn't want to be the other way either. You know what I'm saying? He didn't want to be marked as by the, uh, I'll call it the Mizrahi world, shall I say, uh, the the science world, the Shaw Lieberman world, as somebody who's just gone over to to the right-wingers like Lakewood, who want no Limudichol whatsoever. It's not who he was. And so he ended up staying in a place in which, you know, in Switzerland, you still have these Yekisha communities, they still keep up some form of Derek Harris. So like I said, it's like a time war. You understand? That's where he spent the rest of his life. Now, since people took care of him, and he had that uh, quiet, and at least where he lives, by his utmost, their hearts for him. And he had a yeshiva where he could give shurim once in a while if he wanted to. And he, he liked to give talks to the Balabadim. He was a very good um, darshaner. Uh, he has a book that he published... I got it long ago in the 30s called Lifrakim for occasions. Which he has a lot of his sermons and, 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 and essays on people and stuff. And it's always been expanded. I have now in Shoal 
or the expanded edition. There was a time I was into it, and then, I don't know, I got out of his style of writing. He's an excellent writer, right? And he always has, you know, interesting insights, but it's a certain type. I don't know. It, you know, sometimes it blows hot, sometimes it blows cold. But I do recommend everybody should get a hold of it if you can, because he's a very profoundly intellectual person with a lot of regish. And uh, I saw Atlas mentioned um, a speech he gave. I'll just give it... This is just very interesting. Here's a person who just went through the Holocaust. Now, I can guarantee you, he is not one of the people, like many, who simply say like this, the war is over, the Holocaust is over, I don't know why God did this. I don't know. That's a fact. I can't spend the rest of my life trying to figure this out, so I'm going to go and try to rebuild my life as best I can and just regard what happens as a bad dream. That became the firm approach. Uh, obviously, there's a reason for things, but we don't know what the reason is, and let us move on. And he wasn't like that. Why'd this happen? That whole world. The the term derech, the yechish thing was beautiful, the litvish thing was beautiful, the chassidish thing was beautiful, and that God brought down this all us. What happened? You understand? We have to try to evaluate it. And don't tell me you don't have any doubts. How can you not have doubts after you've seen so much of Tzadik Barola, Barosha, Batovlo? I mean, Moshe may know had issues. He said, show me your face. How can you say, I just have a Muna Pshuta? Now, how can you do that? You know, he was a profoundly religious person. The Musser worked funny in him. Back before the First World War, he wrote, and remember, Mark Shapiro published his uh, essay uh, on uh, Berdachevsky, who was a leading, as we would say today, Chiloni writer. Ex-Yeshiva guy who went off the derech, major writer in the pre-World War One period, Michal Yosef Berdachevsky. And he said, the guy has fake as doubts about God, about religion. I respect that because he's wrestling with doubts. That's actually more respectable than some person who just goes around and has no intellectual side to his religiosity whatsoever. It's a most unusual, very interesting essay, right? Well, he was like that because I saw he gave a speech after the war and he said something. This, this is very interesting. He says, what do we know about Acher and Rameer? They say, uh, Achar became unfrom, and Rameir uh, ate the fruit and threw away the peel. Uh, you know, Klipo, Zorak, uh, and the Paris is Achal. Right? Famous line. So, what does that mean? He was Medayic like this. It just say the Paris was Achal. Why do you say the Klipo Zorak? Isn't that understood? You only eat the Paris. So, uh, he said like this in his opinion, in his speech. Klipos Zorak means like this. Ramera Klipos, let's put it this way. What made Acher unfrum? There's several opinions, but the basic idea is Sadik were all over Russia Tovlo. Either you, that story about the kid who fell off the tree trying to do Kibbut of Aim, or he saw the tongue of Kutzmas on Maturgaman, that the famous rabbi that the Romans destroyed and the dogs were eating his tongue. So basically, that's a Holocaust word. How could such a mouse that had such Kedusha? Is now being eaten by dogs. You know, he snapped. Well, let's put it this way. It's a, that's a good kasha. You know what I mean? In, in the Piyutim, you say in Russia, on Yom Kippur and, and Tishabov, they even say something like the Malachim say, what's going on over here? And God says, That's a poetic way of saying like this. I can't figure this out. So, the person should have that kind 
doubt at least. And so the problems that he suggested, the problems that bothered Acher, also bothered Romer. He wrestled with them also. The Sadiq Barasha Batoblo and the Roman persecutions. But Zorak. But unlike Acher, Romer was able to throw them away, meaning to get past them and not allow them to turn him into an unbeliever. And he's obviously talking about himself. <laughs> now being Sigmund Freud. Right? Uh, and what he's saying is the Holocaust shattered him. Even religiously, he just reconstructed himself. He put himself back on there. Now, when you say it's a crisis of Amuna, he say, how can you not have a crisis of Amuna? Right? How can you not? Now, what's interesting is, therefore, these last 20 years, he had to write, start writing all over again. Because the Germans had burned all of his stuff. Except for a bunch of chubas and things like that that were rescued from the fire by one of his students. His main student was Eliezer Berkowitz, who came to America to teach Jewish philosophy at Skokie. They had big fights over there because he was too left-wing for the Skokieites, meaning for uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik and people like that, Iron Soloveitchik. And they had huge battles back in the 60s or whatever. Yeah. He wanted to turn Skokie into a uh, Hillsheimer seminary. They wanted to turn it into Yeshiva. You know, so it was all battles. And Rabbi Berkowitz, who I didn't know well, and ended up towards the end of his life, becoming a real left-winger. Really left-winger. But he was Talmud Chacham, and um, he was devoted to the teacher, and he saved from the German destruction when the fires of the Kristallnach X number of writings. That's why he saved it's called Three Day H that would survive the fire. But in addition to that, our hero, once he got his farm, started being active in Jewish life through correspondence. He didn't go anywhere. He said, I don't want to go to Israel. I want to go to America. The politics will tear me apart and knock me down. I can't stand... Boy, he has these letters to his friend. Uh, I remember Mark Shapiro published some of them. Then if you don't, uh, some of these are written by Professor Atlas. Atlas was... Um, Samuel Atlas was... Seems to have been the best friend. And Samuel Atlas was... Guy went off the derech, as we say. He's a big Talmud Chacham. He was the son of Rabbi At- Atlas from Shavuot. He was the big rabbi in Lithuania. Uh, his sister married a Chonawasserman. That's that's who he is. Now, uh, Samuel Atlas was uh, among the best guys in the Yeshiva world. And there's a Baltimore connection in this. I don't know if you know this. In the First World War, at one point, this rich lady, I think she was the daughter of of, T, of Wisotsky, uh, this rich lady basically said, I'm going to do the modern version of the Klois, like I spoke about last week. A super colo for genius guys, and I'll fi- uh, pay pay for it, uh, fundraise it well, and I'll fund it well, and they should be turn out super learners. And she went to Ritzel Aponovitcher, who was the number one Rosh Hashiva, and uh, you'll be in charge. And so round up the best guys, and that'll be your uh, Chabura. And uh, the Near Israel uh, uh, um, world of legend, I mean, I don't think it's not true, it's, it's legendary. The Rabbi Rune was, was supposed to be one of these groups in the altar, and Sabokka said, don't go, because it's not going to be good. And uh, they all went off to Derek. And uh, at, Professor Atlas was one of them because he ended up going to college 
and the university became that from. And by the time his career expressed itself, he was uh, in the in the teaching by the Reform in New York, the Reform Seminary. You know, the HUCJIR. HUC is in, um, what do you call it, Cincinnati. And the JIR half is in New York. He taught Jewish philosophy and Talmud um, in, Reform, in, in Reform Seminary for decades, died in 1977. I knew a certain historian, I don't want to say his name, prominent historian, he was a nice guy to me, and uh, he he was a Reformed rabbi. You know this, before he went into the world of Jewish history, so he was a Reformed rabbi, and he told me once, he said, oh, I had Talmud with Professor Atlas. You know, I said, really? It's interesting, you know. Uh, what did he learn? I don't know, Baba Kama, whatever. I said, that's interesting, because he, he definitely knew how to learn, and he published... By the way, the uh, the rivet on Baba Kama. And uh, anyway, the long and the short of the conversation was, yeah, he had him for like two years or three years, but in the reform, what was the Talmud curriculum? I think it was, I kid you not, I think it was 14 hours in two semesters. <laughs> yeah, that's how much Kumar they had. Uh, like 14 hours in two semesters. And let's say I'm wrong. Let's say it was 14 hours in one semester of... 14 hours? <laughs> it's an hour a week. Um, whoa. But okay. Okay. So this Professor Atlas was was, was a, a, a bosom buddies with him from the old days, you know, before the First World War. And they were uh, had a lot of correspondence together. And he unburdened himself to him. And I remember years and years ago, Professor Shapiro published some of these letters in English translation. You know, a lot of it was like uh, kiss-and-tell type letters, what he really thought of people and whatever. I remember he thought Abram Joshua Eshel was a jerk or something. And um, uh, I see in this in this article, in, in the Sinai, I just find it's interesting uh, that he's writing to him after the war and he's saying, I'm so tzibrochen because I see the firm world has not reacted to the Holocaust by increasing their midos, but the opposite. If Amin Nizri could be Marshkara, sometimes I hit a depression. Nid Miliki Aleka Khanersha Shayuma. I told you, he said that show was God hitting the Jews. He's bothered by this. But as a Baal Musar, he's saying, How shall we react to this terrible tragedy? We can't live our lives the way we used to live before, and we are. He says, Ki Aleka Khanura Shalashoa Hayuma, low Paul Harbe. That the terrible lesson of the Holocaust did not do much to uh, for our Musar uh, or religious improvement. When I allow myself to get into depression, I see in the firm world so much the grub, gross uh, vanity, uh, hard heartedness. Phony uh, taking advantage of Jewish Rachmanis for crooked deals. People who have no business being at the leaders of something jumping to the front. In other words, was it was rabbinic leaders, Russian Shivas, Halomas Emes, hiding the truth, daring to switch Emes for falsehood, Hispirus Visyavshal Shekhar. People boasting of who their their godless is when it's a lie, constantly chasing after PR, 
of being indifferent to the troubles of the rabbim, trying to show off and dance with hypocritical piety. So let's put it this way. These are the kind of things that we throw a salanter, <laughs> you know, would say. Uh, most of us would say like this, I don't see nothing bad over If you have a, if you're a fine tuned to real musr, you know, you see all the, the falschkeit that goes on in our world today. Um, anyhow, uh, so what he did was uh, kept up with all that's going on and he started publishing. That's the point I wanted to make. And he wrote a lot in the journals of the time, including Charles and Shubas. He used to write in a party, as I remember, on, on problems of current time. Um, he wrote in scholarly journals for Rabbi Mirsky and YU and others. And uh, he put together quite a, bo- a, a, a body of material. In his old age, um, it, tell you again, he, it, controversy, personal controversy, couldn't, he couldn't handle. Uh, he had too delicate of a constitution. It's clear. I mean, of a mental constitution. I don't think he ever was into that. But particularly after the Holocaust, you know, he, he just couldn't handle it. Some, we're all like that to some degree. You know, if somebody attacks me personally, I freak out. You know, a lot of people have that nature. Other people not. Other people like Donald Trump, you know. But many people are like, freak him out. And he was, you know, he was that times 100. And so, uh, many halachic issues and other matters where he may have held one way, but he wrote differently because he don't make fights. Uh, one big issue I know was uh, the question of agunas and uh, can you do one of these Rackman type, you know, ksubas in which you say that if the marriage doesn't work out, it's afkin or bonakidushimene lamafreya. You know what I'm saying? They make the marriage annulled from retroactively, so she won't be aguna. So if you end up having a husband who won't give a wife a get, you do the afkin or bonakidushimene. I've caused condition. You know, I don't want to go into all the technicalities of it, but that the technicalities is exactly what it was about. Because, uh, as you know, this has been one of the hot button issues, properly so, uh, in modern times. We have the new type of aguna. Not that the husband is missing in a war or something like that, but the husband's living across the street won't give his wife a get. We don't find ourselves in a situation like it used to be in Europe that you can force somebody. This problem happens in Israel as well as America. We all know this. And what do you do about it? Now, the typical way to say is like this. There's nothing you can do about it. You just try to get the guy to give to get. Um, but there's always a counter-argument, which is, well, if you want to, you could do off cause condition or something like that. If you write the tuba properly, you write the the, the the marriage contract, you know, the, now we call them prenuptials, things like that. Uh, the prenuptials as we have now in America like the kind of Rabbi Shechter and Herschel Shechter, that's of a different nature, but they have the same goal. Right? They're constructed differently. They have the same goal. And the main problem is that the Gemara says, Yesh Tanai B'Kedushin ain't Tanai B'Nesuin. You hear what I say? Yesh Tanai B'Kedushin, anybody learning Kedushin knows, it's all full of Tanai cases, but ain't Tanai B'Nesuin. If the husband goes ahead and does the Nesuin, there's no Tanai. But on the other hand, there's a place in your day, I mean in Ebenezer, where uh, the, there are more quotes, uh, we throw Bruno, 
and which ones they did did like that. And so the question became, can you make a tenayin dinasuin to make oikel mafreya? And the conservatives started this back in the twenties. The Orthodox reacted against it, precisely because the conservatives did it. They tried it in France earlier. Um, it became a marker of orthodoxy that you don't hold from such things. And the Kiliaka Weinberg actually did hold from it, and so did Eliezer Berkowitz. Not that he was anybody in America, that's the point. And uh, see, he, so he got together and, you know, basically the Rebbe said like this, I don't have the kaich and I don't want to get into controversies over this. And so you write the book, I'll write Yaskama. And he published a book, which you can get now. The most Rev Cook published it, and you can republish it, called Yeshenai Benesuin. And he makes the case, you know, through using the halachic literature, that it's possible to construct Yeshenai Benesuin. Which de facto means you could do this, you could write this clause in the, in the marriage contract when you get married. However, you do it with a Tanai, and the bottom line is you be Urkel Mafreya, and that way nobody could uh, make his wife an Aguna in the following way. But that's the most he would do. You know what I'm saying? That's the most he would do. He wouldn't come out and come out in favor of it. Just like indicate it's very typical, you know, he couldn't handle controversy. Right? On the other hand, he had a lot of shadows and, and in three days full of every kind of shadow you could you can imagine, including questions of boys and girls and brushing their teeth and sleep of things and all kind of he's had you know, he got serious shadows, okay, from all over the world. And I would go so far as to say those who were looking for his that type of Pisic, which he didn't have too much in the in those years. Somebody who's a, a goon and a posek, but on the other hand, is a term derivative type guy, Bashita, as therefore more practical, more open minded, they would turn to him. Although he is the opposite, if you think he's like some uh everything's mutter or whatever, he's not like that at all. Not at all. But on the other hand, he does bring a broad understanding of human nature uh, to the Shilohs, which makes them very interesting. You understand? Especially, you know, quite, you know, covering the hair and, you know, walk around the house, uh, you know, uh, wearing this. Uh, uh, a thousand cases. Right? All kind of very interesting uh, uh, approaches. Now, uh, in his old age, he realized he's going. He never got married. He realized he's going. And so he wanted his stuff to be published properly. He was afraid what happened to him, what happened to the Gemara. One of the things he used to write about in the Gemara is that the, they did a terrible cop job in the uh, Gersas. A lot of things we we have. In our Gemara today, you and I, he writes in his analysis, are really Rashi's uh, comments that were just stuck in the Gemara by somebody. Um, I'm serious. And, and things like that. The answer is a lot of cautious that way. Uh, the Moser of Cook published a lot of these essays plus a lot of lumdus, a lot of lumdus stuff in this Mech Karim Talmud. I never got it. You know, I would like to get that. And I asked this farm chatter to look into it tonight. He sometimes has contacts out there in this farm world. Maybe didn't get these out of print books. The Moser of Cook published it long ago. And uh, it's two volumes, if I remember correctly. It's two volumes full of all this dense stuff. And part of it is just pure uh, shiur me gave, and part of it not. Now recently they started. Uh, he's got fans, so recently they started uh, republishing the shiurim in uh, 
these light blue covers. Maybe you've seen them. I got like one somewhere. So it's it's coming out more. Because he definitely has those who are trying to spread him in the in the Yeshiva world. Although they in the Hakama they try to put a more right wing spin on him than he actually was. But whatever. Um plus his um his Chachmatik of things, his history lectures, I tell you, his history lectures, his history the comments were mainly um uh, in the area of, of uh Talmudic literature, let's put it that way. Uh, interestingly, um you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but there used to be the three day age of Darcy Hoffman. The three day age I'm sorry, the um Doris were shown him versus Darcy Hoffman. These are two Orthodox famous Gedolim. Uh Darcy Hoffman was a certain type. And the Doris Rishonim was this brilliant but very vild uh rabbi from uh uh Russia, from Volozhin actually. Even the, he was once a rich guy, he was the god by Volozhin. The Doris Rishonim was the Chavrusa with Chaim Brisker when he was young. You know, he was a tremendous Lamdim. And uh, he had no academic background whatsoever. He had no historical training whatsoever. He was just autodidact and he ran on his own. He published um, the last decade before the First World War several volumes of what he called Doris Rishonim, which is his construction attacking the 19th century historians, the non from ones, Gratz and Weiss and Frankel and all these other guys. And he's like in a very Haredi way. But he was a tremendous Gordon, he was a tremendous Machadish. Um, now, whether Chidushin are appropriate in the area of history is debatable. Um, and if you're interested in what I'm talking about, if you get Rabbi Victor Miller's uh, Torah Nation and the, the other book, what's called Exalted People, I think, he's a fan of his and he gives it to you in English. So I wouldn't send somebody to read the Dursa Show. It's written out of order. It's written wild and all that. Very unusual way. But Rabbi Victor Miller, he put it into regular English, regular guy, if that's what you're interested in. Uh, and he attacked everybody right and left. You know, Gretz was a dumbbell and Franklin was a blockhead and this one was this and that guy's that. And he in- indirectly also attacked Dorothy Hoffman. Not as being on from, but having the wrong ideas. We're dealing with issues most people aren't even aware of issues. You know, uh, did the Medrash form like the Michalta Sifra and Sifri predate the Mishnah form or the Mishnah form that came originally? Notice, was it according to the Pusik, the teachings of Chazal? Was it organized freestanding without any reference to the Pusik? Uh, when is the origin of the Mishnahis? We all know uh, from Shri Aghanda, Rehuna Nasi didn't write it in the sense of compose it from scratch, but he took earlier versions of it. What is the earliest version of the Mishnah we use today? You know, Dorothy Hoffman would say, well, Evans would show us, like, uh, you know, late by Shaney, and uh, um, the other guy, Dorothy uh, Hoffman, said, what are you talking about? It's way before that, from the time of uh, beginning of by Shaney. I should get a Sagdola. Sometimes even before. Like I say, arcane issues that the public is mostly not into. But he's very, but our hero is very into this sort of thing. I like it myself. See, as he says, he's on Mitzvah Zilevi to Parshat Mishnah. And uh, Dorothy Hoffman versus uh, Alevi. And he's always favoring Dorothy Hoffman. You know, who always writes Dibri Chacham Benachas Nishvan. Well, I'm saying is a super intellectual type person. At the same time, let me say this. Had he visited Israel just as a visit and gone around to the different Shivas and given sure he could have done it. But he would feel very uncomfortable because he didn't like the super yeshivish direction that she was going to Israel after the Second World War. 
even though part of him was like that. So you end up with something I'm describing as a conflicted person, but conflicted in a glorious way. He was going in this, he was going in that, and, you know, he also wanted to be very open-minded, but very from the same time. We all know it's not so simple. Now, uh, consequently, in the last years, uh, he went to the Mozart of Cookie, contacted him. They said, please take my writings and be massaged them and publish them, but get me a good team of first-rate scholars to handle the material. You know, just pay the money. And uh, they did. I read once the book from the uh, head of Mozart Cook, Yitzhak Raphael, who was Rabbi Mahomet's son-in-law, a big politician in Israel. And he said, you know, that he's the one who made the contact with the with um, our hero. And they hired an A-team to uh, put it together. And indeed, it is a pleasure to read the Street Age, which is now four volumes. Because it's written very well, it's edited very well. The Hebrew is Gavaldic. Uh, our hero has the kind of Hebrew style that I like, which is from 100 years ago, like the Hanum era. I think the best that I saw used it for Torah purposes. Very clear writing, very nice writing. A very exalted personality. And um, when you get to the Shilas, the Shilas are the Shilas. But I would say it's easier to read him than a lot of other Shilas in Jewish Farm. They're saying it is. And the result is that, you know, his last years he was able to get his stuff published. And then he died. Um, so he lived and died in uh, this Switzerland, you know, in this little place. And he relied on people coming to visit him, you know. If this guttle or that guttle or this prominent academic or that one was in Europe, they would spend the day in Montreux. You know what I'm saying? And visit him. But the rest of the time he was with his group. But I'll tell you again, they handled him with kid gloves and it seems like psychologically he needed to be handled with kid gloves. That's what it seems like. You know what I'm saying? Seems like. And he was in this time warp. They had this little Yekosha community of Swiss with a yeshiva sort of there. It fit... It fit for him. But it's a very unusual profile. Now, when he died, they took the body to Israel. Uh, he wanted to be buried in one place, but uh, the uh, Slobodka guys, Cheskel Sina was his, his uh, lifelong friend, one side of him. He wanted to be buried, in, I remember, uh, when maybe it was in Sahendra Merkevet, shall we say a more Zionist cemetery? Is that the right way to put it? And they kidnapped the coffin, <laughs> the Slobodka guys, and buried him in a more yeshivish place. Uh, which is sort of like a metaphor for the life. Isn't it? And uh, it shows the, the, the battle over that. This battle continues, to my mind, because he clearly had big chassidim. These Swiss Jews and others who knew him, they were uh, enamored of him. And on the other hand, he was most unusual. And so, um, they want his stuff to be in the Yeshiva world, which it is, sort of. Uh, not the Mechkar stuff, that's not Yeshivish, but the Lamdish. And um, if you have the old set that I have, the, the, the three days is kind of fun for me, because I think that's the first set of Sfarm I, I, I bought long, long ago which sort of started me on this addiction. Uh, I remember vaguely being with Ray Rottenberg. He went to, we went to some wedding in New York or something like that. Oh, many moons ago. And he went to the Lower East Side. 
that was my first introduction to the bookstores that once exist in the Lower East Side, which no longer do. And in this side was this one, the Goldman, this and this, and the across street was Yaakov Elman's place. There was a different era. And I remember I saw these two things, 3D Asian. I looked at it and I saw that history in it, as well as Shalom as I bought it. And then they're reading it. It was very interesting. Um, recently, in the last year or two or three, uh, his followers, or probably the children of his followers, uh, are, I see, making a campaign to reacquaint the firm public with his works, republish them, and specifically to republish them in a, a very nice, but what seems to be a more Haredi-type format, perhaps that's the right word, uh, uh, and heavier emphasis on the lumbus, it seems to me, which is fine, and it's better print, and um, I saw that they made a Haggadah of his stuff, you know, taking bits and pieces, and I picked up, uh, not long ago, a very interesting book that I glanced at a little here and there, I should really give it more time, I would recommend it, called Zichronos Hasridiyesh, Pirkei Zichronos Vesichos Shalgon Al Mifka Shalvim Gedolion Moritz Chayev. Which means people record stuff that he said, I don't know how they record it, uh, from long ago, uh, and his meetings with encounters with Gedolim and all this stuff. He had a, an interesting life. And a few, half a dozen stories that I read were very interesting, and very much in his style, this exalted Musa personality, running again. Running against the harsh realities of a world which is not based on Musser. Okay? That's the from world, Kabakum and the non from world. So um let me say that uh if you're interested in any of this kind of stuff I'm talking about, you go to your store and see if they have the Zikronus of 3D H. That's a good way to start, in my opinion. And uh the rest of the stuff, if you're interested, you'll see on your own. Uh with him ended the period in Germany. You know, there was no Hildesheimer Seminary after him. That whole world collapsed. Uh, the term Derkhaz has not survived. The Yeshivaism has survived. And what's interesting is he was from the Yeshiva world, but he mourned the fact that the term Derkhaz system did not survive. Uh, because when properly done, in his opinion, those if they come out really from, but also academic, I said both. Um... To him, that was the proper mizug, term uh, So uh, that's why I think it's a very interesting biography. I'm sure I've spoken way too long. Once again, thank the sponsors, and I wish the mother a very happy 90th birthday. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com